into Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 verses 11 through 15 this morning uh, will be our focus as we continue our verse by verse look at this uh, wonderful book of Revelation. And uh, you could tell from the scripture reading this morning that we are getting into even some more deeper details of this future period of time. And two of the most prominent people who will uh, play a tremendous role in this coming period of time on this earth that is unlike anything that we've experienced uh, in our past. Even uh, 2020 and 2021 is nothing compared to, obviously, what is in store in the future of the world. And people are uh, very fascinated with this period of time. Typically, uh, messages on prophecy and particularly future events are the ones that are the most popular uh, if you look at those kinds of things online. And it's for good reason because it's, it's obviously very fascinating. But it can also be kind of uh, dangerous. People can take advantage of that uh, kind of thing. And uh, we just need to be very careful. We need to be very careful that we are not misled and that we are interpreting uh, God's Word as God's Word, that we allow Him to be the author of, this, of these texts, and we are just simply the recipients. We are the ones who are uh, trying to discover the meaning of these words and not put our own preconceived ideas uh, on these topics our own ideas uh, concerning politics and these kinds of things that is so easy to do. Uh, uh, read this through the lens of, of American politics and Americanism in particular, and then uh, come to conclusions about what it means through that lens. And that, that is not at all what we want to do. It certainly is not what we should do. We want to interpret the words as they are uh, written on the page using normal rules of uh, grammar, normal rules of language, and then come to conclusions about uh, what, they, what they mean. And obviously, the, this is important information, otherwise it wouldn't be in the Bible and when we, uh, like we saw last time concerning the Antichrist, uh, the Bible has a lot to say about who this person is. And it really is to our own peril if we disregard this or just kind of approach it as, oh, this is just, you know, figures of speech and just kind of describing the way the world always is and these kinds of things, rather than seeing them as a warning like last week's message ended with a warning for people to pay attention uh, to what is being portrayed here and to uh, properly understand uh, what it means. And that's what we will, that's what we'll try to do again today as we delve into the second beast or the second important person who is going to play a very prominent role in the tribulation period, who is the false prophet. So not a very original title for the message uh, this morning, simply the false prophet, because he will be our main focus of attention today. Again, as we're making our way through this book, it can be kind of, obviously it can be a confusing book, that's the reason why there are so many different interpretations of uh, the book of Revelation as to what it is, it is trying to portray, because it can be, if we allow ourselves to be overrun by the figurative language, it can be confusing. Uh, and so that's why it's a good idea to kind of try to break it down into bite-sized chunks, and that's what uh, the Lord did for us. In Revelation 1.19, he gave us a perfect outline for the book, 
Write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And that's where that final section is the majority of the book, and that's where we find ourselves today studying things that will take place during the tribulation period. And so also, uh, aren't we glad that God is complex? I mean, I think we should be. If, if we just can't, why would we even come to church every Sunday? Or why would we even study the Bible at all if we just had all the answers? And what kind of a God would, be, would we be worshiping if we just knew everything? That would be almost as if we just made a God out of a piece of wood with our own two hands and set it on a shelf and decided to worship that. So yes, the book of Revelation is complex. There are some difficulties within it, but we can make it simpler again by breaking it down. And where we find ourselves in Revelation 13 is in the midst of one of these intermissions, a break in describing sequentially the, the events that will take place where we are looking at more information about this period of time without advancing the timeline, like the seal judgments are describing literal events that will take place in this seven-year period. Then come the trumpet judgments. We've uh, covered those. Now we're in the second intermission where God is describing here for us some other uh, things that will take place during this time period. And God is very specific in giving us these events and for good reason, because there are plenty of people, even all the way in back into Paul's time, people thought they were living in the tribulation period. That's why Paul wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians. We'll talk about 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning. Uh, so people were deceived back then. Obviously, Paul thought it was important to point out to people reasons why they were not living in the tribulation period. He wrote a book of the Bible for that very reason. God gives us all of this, these very precise details so that we are not uh, misled into, for example, selling all of our possessions and going to a mountaintop and disengaging from the world because after all, you know, oh, this is it. This is the end. And uh, we don't have anything else to do here. Uh, and so let's just go into a commune somewhere and wait for Jesus to come. That is not what he wants us to do. Uh, and he gives us all of these very minute details so that we can know uh, about the world that we are living in today and that uh, according to the evidence, we are not in the tribulation period. And we'll see more of that next week when we talk about the mark of the beast. And that should be, uh, there's an, a very obvious contemporary parallel uh, to that, that we can see that we are not living in the tribulation period because it does not match up with the things that we're seeing here. Uh, for example, the two witnesses. There are not two witnesses in Jerusalem today calling down fire on the enemies of God. Therefore, we know we're not living in the tribulation period. Uh, there is not an antichrist ruling over a, a kingdom that is the entire world. Therefore, we know we're not living in the tribulation period. And there is not this false prophet that we will see today in the world right now. But there will be at one point in the future. So chapter 13 is answering the basic question, how does Satan wage war against Christ and against believers during this tribulation period? Well, he primarily uses two people, the Antichrist and the false prophet that we will see today. The Antichrist, we studied him over the last two weeks. Uh, he's covered there extensively in the first 10 verses of chapter 13. We got a lot of information about this person 
who will uh, come to the forefront at some point in the future. We, we got a lot of details over the last two weeks that we have on the screen here. He is a literal person, first of all. He has to be. And we'll see even more evidence of that uh, in these verses in the rest of chapter 13. It has to be a literal person based on a, a again, normal understanding of language and the rules of grammar. This is a person who has never existed in the past and therefore must exist in the future. Uh, he will probably come from the Gentile nations based on the figure of speech there, describing this beast coming out of the sea or out of the ocean. Uh, he could perhaps be Jewish. Uh, a lot of Jewish people live outside of Israel, if you didn't realize that. Probably more live outside than inside Israel. Uh, that scale is uh, balancing more towards uh, Israel in these days. Huh. I wonder why that could be. The Bible says that will happen, actually, and we're seeing that happen as we, as we live and breathe today. Uh, we're seeing Bible prophecy be fulfilled in that regard. Uh, he may be Jewish based on uh, an interpretation of Daniel eleven thirty six and 37, uh, that he, he won't, essentially he won't respect the God of his fathers, or uh, most of our Bibles probably say the gods of his fathers, but it, it's possible that that could be the God of his fathers being a reference to the God of Israel. He could be Jewish. He may not be. Uh, at any rate, he will be the personification of this coming world kingdom, very similar to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the kingdom that will one day be on this earth after the Antichrist's kingdom. He is the representation of this kingdom. Uh, he has a very similar description to Satan we saw because he is satanically empowered. He will receive a fatal wound that will be healed. He's probably going to undergo some sort of miraculous healing or resurrection. There's some dispute about that also among scholars, among good scholars. Some will believe that, yes, he could be. Some are very adamant that, oh, no, he could never be resurrected. Uh, we'll just go with what the language says. It says he received a fatal wound and, and he came back to life. <laughs> so... I sort of side with the idea that he received a fatal wound and now he's alive. Uh, whatever, you could call that whatever you want. If you don't want to call it a resurrection because Jesus was resurrected, that's fine. Uh, but he received a fatal wound and he's still alive. His reign will last for three and a half years. That is a point that is very explicit in the Old and New Testament 42 months, time, times, and a half a time, it says. Uh, 1,260 days, it says. Sometimes three and a half years, this Antichrist is going to rule over, essentially, the world. Now, he's going to be on the scene, on the world scene, for seven years, but he's going to have his actual rule and authority during the second half of that seven-year period, three and a half years. He's going to literally be worshipped as God by unbelievers. He's going to be very arrogant and blasphemous. We'll see more of that today. And it's going to take perseverance to survive, to physically survive his reign. We saw, saw that last time. And so uh, it, this week, we transition into this other beast, the false prophet. Today we'll see his description, his direction, and his deception. Essentially, the false prophet, what our takeaway from this is, is that he is the right-hand man of the Antichrist. He is, he is going to be kind of the power uh, behind the scenes, if you will. And this is very true of major people on the world stage. Uh, uh, more often than not, if not every time, they have an assistant who is uh, equally as amazing 
as they are, equally as talented as the person that they are, that they are supporting. When they're, I'm not, you know, singing the praises of the Antichrist here, just making a recognition that obviously this is going to be a, an extremely talented person who uh, is able to draw the world uh, to himself, essentially, to, to come to the position of power that he is going to have. And he is going to have this false prophet, we'll refer to him as, as his uh, number one assistant, his right-hand man. I think of uh, coming from the Navy, I think of the commanding officer and executive officer relationship. I was in a few different uh, commands over, the, over my years in the Navy. And the CO, the commanding officer, is definitely the one in charge, but the ones who were good and effective had a, an executive officer who was also uh, good and effective. And the, the commanding officer would be kind of the face of the squadron, and the executive, you did not want to have a meeting uh, with the executive officer when you have done something wrong. Uh, we'll just put it that way. He's kind of the hammer behind the scenes. The CEO oftentimes would be everybody's buddy, you know, <laughs> pseudo friend. And the XO would be the one who goes around, does the inspections, you know, and, and you get in trouble uh, oftentimes from the executive officer. Same thing is going to uh, kind of be, that's the sort of relationship that we see here with the Antichrist and the false prophet. It reminds me a lot of the husband and wife uh, relationship uh, also. Two different roles, distinct roles that uh, drive a family towards uh, uh, the, the end goal. That's what we're seeing here with the Antichrist and the false prophet also. Uh, hopefully our marriages aren't... <laughs> The father is the antichrist and the, the wife is the false prophet. That wouldn't be a good biblical marriage in that regard, but just a, a similar dynamic, if you will. I'll stop digging the hole. Uh, and we'll just move on to the description of the false prophet. Notice Revelation 13 and verse 11 uh, where it says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. This is another beast, it says there in the NASB, which means an, uh, a beast that is of a similar kind to the first one, but different. So two beasts here. And so, therefore... If we use a consistent method of interpretation, if we came to the conclusion that the first beast is a person, then the second beast must, by definition, be a person. And this is where uh, kind of the interpretations that see the first beast as something other than a person run into difficulties with the second beast. Because if the first one isn't a person, then that means the second one can't be a person either. And boy, it's really difficult to, <laughs> to read these verses here and see this beast as not being a person. He has to be a person. And so, therefore, the first one has to be a person also. Because after all, this person, uh, Revelation 16.3 uh I don't think that's the right verse. Uh, but Revelation 19.20, for sure, is a person. Uh, only people will be cast into the lake of fire. Only people. Not institutions, not, uh, not uh, symbolically groups of people. Individual people are going to be cast into the lake of fire, namely at one point or another, those who have not trusted in Christ will be. Uh, but two people in particular at the end of the tribulation period will be the first two people to go there, the Antichrist and the false prophet that we're studying here today. So a consistent interpretation of the figures of speech leads us to conclude that this another beast has to be 
a person. And notice uh, that he comes up out of the earth, it says here in the NASB. And I think most of the English translations have something that's very similar to that. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And so if you'll remember, we spent some time when we looked at the first beast, and I mentioned it earlier, that Revelation 13.1, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. We spent some time looking at passages, particularly Revelation 17, that told us that figuratively speaking, the sea was the Gentile nations. Now this one is coming up out of the earth or out of the land, that term can be uh, translated as. So if we use again our consistently looking at the, the figures of speech here, we can easily, could easily conclude that this second beast, this false prophet, will be Jewish because he is coming out of the land, which of course, throughout the Bible, that term land is symbolic of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the land that God gave to them. So I think it's a very fair to conclude that this person is going to be Jewish in the future. And we, we know from many, many passages that God's focus is turning back to the nation of Israel during this tribulation period. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah. Very clearly, Jeremiah states that, that Jerusalem is going to become the focus of the world's attention during this tribulation period. And it's not just an Old Testament concept, it's also a New Testament concept. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, Paul writing about this future tribulation period. Again, Second Thessalonians 2, uh, he's writing to them uh, to ensure that they understand that they're not living in the day of the Lord, he calls it. And then he proceeds to give them several reasons why. Number one of which is that, uh, that the Antichrist is not in the world today. Second Thessalonians 2, 4, and Paul describes uh, who something about this Antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2, 4 says this Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, there's only one temple of God that, that is relevant in this regard, and it's not there today, but it will be obviously in the future because this event hasn't taken place yet. This Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem as God. And that's going to be a very big deal in the world. A turning of the world's focus to Israel, Jerusalem, this temple in particular, and the Antichrist setting himself up as God there in the temple. And so it makes sense that this second beast could come from Israel. And also, the Lord himself warned in the Olivet Discourse, we'll see some more of these verses later, uh, that he, where he warns of false prophets. Matthew twenty four twenty four, he says for, Jesus says, for false Christs and false prophets, notice that it is plural there, but nevertheless, will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Well, here we're going to see that this false prophet that we're studying here in Revelation 13, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this statement of Christ. And he comes from the land or out of the earth, a figure of speech that oftentimes can be used to represent Israel. Now, uh, John Wolverd, for one, he's, he disregards that. He's a, an excellent scholar, obviously. Uh, he disregards that and says it's reading too much 
into the passage to say that he's Jewish. So if you don't agree, that that's fine. <laughs> you have uh, you have good uh, ammunition to go to. But clearly, there is a Jewish connection to this person and the the events that are that are going to take place in what we see here, even in Revelation uh, thirteen. But we, when we studied Second Thessalonians, uh, however long before we got into Revelation here, uh, was if you'll remember, we talked about the apostasy uh, that's in Second Thessalonians two and what exactly that is, and we saw that well that we kind of concluded that well that's the nation of Israel believing in the Antichrist as their Christ. That is the apostasy. That will be the ultimate apostasy that ever takes place in this world, even more so than not believing in Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. That's one thing. Uh, That's really bad. But believing somebody else is Jesus is even even worse in my mind than uh, rejecting Christ the first time he came. Uh, Believing in someone else as the Messiah is the apostasy. So it makes sense that this person could be uh, Jewish. After all, uh, I, I'm not sure if you realize it, but we, I've, Suzanne and I have watched some documentary kind of videos about Israel and Orthodox uh, Judaism in particular, and their rabbis in Israel are like superstars if you didn't realize that, that among the Orthodox Jews, and they, they wear uh, different hats and different styles of clothes and this kind of thing. Like we try to copy whoever, uh, hopefully we don't do this, but people in America will wear the clothes style of their favorite rapper or movie star or whatever. Well, in Israel, the Orthodox Jews copy the styles of their favorite rabbi. These people are like pop stars. So they are, they're looking for someone to uh, latch on to. They're very susceptible to someone like this false prophet who is going to come and do the things that he does and uh, follow after him. And so while we're seeing this false prophet as being a, an individual person, we've, we've also realized there are other views. The historicist view will see this false prophet as the papacy, uh, the the Roman popes of early church history, Roman Catholic popes uh, throughout time. But uh, I I think you could search and search history and not find a a pope as bad as some of them were. Uh, they weren't calling down fire uh, as is described here. They didn't cause every person in the world to receive a mark so that they wouldn't be able to buy or or sell. And if they didn't take the mark, they were to be killed. They they just didn't do the things that are described here. Uh, As far as the preterists go, if you'll remember, the preterists are those who basically see Revelation as describing uh, the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem in, in AD 70. Uh, they have a real hard time with these verses assigning a person to fulfill this. Some of them will say that, well, this was this this uh, beast here is the people who led Caesar worship during the early first century. Again, uh, same problem as assigning the popes to this. First of all, uh, you notice leaders. This is one person. Uh, the papacy is a group of popes that this is one person who is being described here. So uh, this actually, these verses are one of the hardest things for preterists to try to come up with an answer with an answer to who this could possibly be Uh, the spiritual or idealist uh, interpretation of revelations. Just again, like everything sees this is, Oh, this is just anything that's false, any kind of false religion, uh, false worship of uh, any any time. Again, we, we, we're getting some specific information here that leads us to believe that, yeah, boy, uh, this is unlike any person who's ever 
existed. Notice the second half of the verse says that he has two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He, this person will literally be the definition of a wolf in sheep's clothing. So much so that the Bible describes him as being like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon instead of, okay, he's a dragon in sheep's clothes, I guess, instead of a wolf in sheep's clothing. But he, this entire description is, is a parody of Christianity, And Jesus warned about this too, even in the Sermon on the Mount, not just in the Olivet Discourse, but in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is what this person is going to be. He's going to have two horns like a lamb, if you'll remember Jesus, of course, Revelation 5, 6, the scene in heaven before the tribulation period kicks off in the book of Revelation. He is portrayed as a lamb. Jesus has seven horns there, if you'll remember. The horns are typically uh, symbolic of some kind of power. So clearly this uh, false prophet is going to have some sort of power. He has two horns uh, here as being described. Uh, the first beast had 10 horns. Uh, clearly, the first beast is going to have more power, more authority, but nevertheless, this false prophet is going to have some sort of authority, and he's pictured as a lamb, an absolute imitation of Christ. We're going to see also that he is an imitation of the Holy Spirit in some of the things that he does also. So he looks He could have the appearance of a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon. I I picture this as being uh, that he's kind of passive aggressive, which is the very nature of political correctness in this world today. It is, uh, again, I don't want to read politics into uh, this kind of thing, but the the fact of the matter is that... uh, that is the, the very nature of political correctness is the same sort of passive aggressive kind of attitude. It's the appearance of virtue, uh, that uh, the appearance of virtue in things that are completely contrary to actual virtue, biblical principles. That's that in in a nutshell is political correctness, that if you don't agree with these uh, principles, then you aren't a loving person. Then you are a, uh, you are a racist. You are homophobic. You are whatever the, uh, you are anti-science if you don't believe in wearing masks even. And if you don't think that, that uh, it can come across in sort of a soft way, oh, we just need to love everybody. You're not, well, you, you're not loving your neighbor if you don't wear your mask. It's a loving thing. And oh, by the way, if you continue to persist in not wearing your mask, we're going to haul you off to jail. Uh, and the, the rules and regulations concerning what you can and can't say on the, even on the internet in Europe are very different than what they are here in America, you can literally be arrested for not towing uh, the line when it comes to political correctness. And so while we are not living in this period today, we can certainly see the world is marching lockstep towards something along these lines. And I believe that the Lord is, reveals these things to us so that we are not deceived by the current wave of events. Uh, even though we believe we won't be here, we can still be deceived today. And that's why Paul says in Colossians, people could be deceived uh, in the first century with literal apostles standing before them and teaching them, people could still be deceived. If that doesn't tell you something about uh, (laughs) our nature as human beings, I don't know what would, but Paul says in Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception 
according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Uh, Boy, the tradition of men, the philosophy of men today is to unify uh, around political correctness. And, and they even have a flag to unify around. Uh, the rainbow flag today, we noticed, uh, we saw a uh, travel video about Europe. This was even made a couple years ago where the, the, there were learning about these cities and whatever. And sure enough, they show, oh, this city has three flags, the European Union flag, the Italian flag, and this flag symbolizes peace, rainbow flag. Uh, I saw an article just this morning about, uh, I wish I could remember exactly what the position was, but an individual who has been appointed to a very prominent role in the Mexican government, he's literally from a drug cartel, It showed a uh, sea of his supporters. They all had a particular flag for this person or this state, wherever he came from. And right in the middle of it in Mexico, drug cartel, you guessed it, rainbow flag right in the midst of all these people. Uh, this, This is the direction of the world. This is what the world has decided to unify around And there's coming a day when someone is going to come into this world. He's going to come out of the earth, probably a Jewish person. He's going to have some sort of authority. He's going to look like a lamb, but he's going to speak like a dragon. And he's going to drag the world into unification around something in particular. Uh, And we see his direction eventually what it's going to become is something very different than what it's going to start out as. Uh, And we'll see that kind of, we'll look at it today, but we'll see it described in more detail later in Revelation 17. But the, the, the means of gathering the world together is not the same in the beginning as it will be at the midpoint of the tribulation. Revelation 13 focuses on the midpoint. But notice uh, Revelation 13, 12, speaking of this false prophet, it says that he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He exercises the authority of the Antichrist, it says there, in uh, Revelation 13, 12, and the NASB tacks on in his presence. Uh, and it, it can also be uh, translated as before him. He exercises his authority before him. And essentially what it's saying is that he's doing it on his behalf. He, the, the Antichrist is designating or delegating his authority to this false prophet, this second beast, and then he's carrying it, carrying it out. Uh, that's what it means to do it in his presence or, or uh, before him, these kinds of things. Uh, and so this, by, by definition, this person is also going to be satanically empowered. Uh, similar, probably not to the same extent as the Antichrist is. Most theologians will uh, argue that the Antichrist is going to literally be indwelt by Satan. But, he, but certainly his, Satan's authority was designated to the first beast, Revelation 13, 4. They, the unbelievers of the world, worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, to the Antichrist, the first Beast. Well, here in 13.12, we're seeing that this authority is then also delegated, at least in some respects, to uh, the second beast or the false prophet. And there is an example from the Old Testament of something that's very similar to what we're going to see here in Revelation 13. We see that in Daniel 3. This is why Uh, Daniel and Revelation are kind of companion books to understand the end times. Uh, 
Daniel, I, I think of as being kind of the framing of the house for the end times in the book of Revelation, puts on the siding and the drywall and the paint and the wood floors and carpet and molding. You get all the details uh, from Revelation, but you get the basic structure comes from the book of Daniel. And, and it even has an example of essentially emperor worship and being penalized with death if you don't uh, follow through. Daniel 3. Uh, Daniel's three friends uh, being cast into the fire. That's what Daniel 3 is about. Uh, Daniel 3, 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar, who of course was the king at the time, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. Now don't, I don't think we need to make a big deal out of that as we get to the end of Revelation. But he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of, province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps. Notice all these different uh, levels of authority that he's calling here. He assembles the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Uh, we're seeing something very similar in our world today, that every single level of government from the top to the bottom, including the media, is all geared towards uh, one thing. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did also. Verse 3, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They did what the king told them to do. Then the herald, one person in particular, in particular loudly proclaimed... To you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the blazing fire. And of course, we're probably familiar with the rest of the story. Uh, the music goes off. The world bows down with the exception of three little Jewish boys who wouldn't play the game. And they are cast into the fire. They are protected there uh, and kept alive in the midst of the fiery furnace as I believe the Lord is there with them also in the furnace uh, but nevertheless, that herald is very similar to uh, this false prophet who's going to come in the future. The herald in Nebuchadnezzar's time led the world to worship this image of the king. The uh, false prophet is going to do something very similar. He directs the world to worship the Antichrist. Second half of verse 2, not only does he exercise the authority of the first beast or the Antichrist, he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Here again, of course, uh, another reference to this fatal wound. Um, how do you worship an empire? That doesn't really make any sense. Why would you worship an empire that had uh, some sort of fatal wound and then came back to life? That doesn't make any sense. But does it make sense for people to worship another person who died and came back to life? I hope it does. I hope that makes sense to you because that's why we're here today. <laughs> because we worship a man who died and came back to life. So it certainly makes sense that the unbelieving world in the future will worship a man who at least seemingly had a fatal wound and came back to life. And that's exactly what this false prophet is going 
to do. He's going to lead people in this. He's going to direct them to do it. The, the Greek New Testament uses the term poieo, to do things. It, it uses that term five times here of this false prophet. He is a doer. He is a doer of things. He is the driving force behind this. He is, he's an imitation of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life cannot be led or successfully without the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that is uh, the way you can know whether or not you're walking by the Spirit, according to Galatians. If you are fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, you are not walking by the power of the Spirit. It, it is impossible, not just difficult, it is impossible to live the Christian life without the empowering Holy Spirit doing his work and will in your life. The Antichrist agenda would be impossible without the working, the doing of the false prophet. Similarly, he exercises or does authority, poieo, all the authority of the first priest, uh, first beast. He does that. He makes the world worship. He does that, poieo. He performs great signs, poieo. He does great signs. He has the people make an image, poieo, again. And he gives breath to uh, this image that we're going to see. He, again, poieo. He is the doer behind everything that is the agenda of the Antichrist here. But uh, just because he directs the world to worship this uh, man, the Antichrist, and this image that's going to be set up here, we'll get to shortly. It doesn't mean that people don't have a choice. Similar to in Daniel 3, Daniel's three friends did not uh, worship the image. People in the future are also not going to worship the image. We've seen that. Revelation twelve ten. Revelation 15 to all describing people who are successful in this battle uh, uh, against Satan and his forces in the future. Oftentimes, however, they're going to pay with it, pay for that with their lives. Like we read about last week in uh, verse 10 of Revelation 13 uh, if anyone is destined for captivity to captivity, he goes And a better translation. If anyone is going to be killed with the sword, he's going to be killed with the sword. Uh, and that's why it's going to take perseverance to survive. So with this, a likely scenario for the, this kind of what's being described here. Uh, we need to keep in mind that the Antichrist, although his reign is three and a half years, again, he comes on the scene with the first seal, the beginning of the tribulation. This false prophet is probably going to come on the scene around the same time. He's going to be a unifying force for the world to create what is, I believe, sometimes, uh, well, I believe oftentimes, incorrectly is referred to as the one world church uh, that just makes my skin crawl because the church the church is is us we are the church those who have believed in christ are the church and to ascribe that term to anything other than the body of people who have trusted in christ in my mind is is wrong and gives me the heebie-jeebies uh, so uh, uh, maybe a better term is a one world religion, because after all, the church is not a religion. A religion is man trying to be right with God. The church is a group of people who understand that God made things right for us and we're believing in him through Jesus Christ. So He's going, this false prophet is going to come into the world and he's going to unite the world in a false religion. And if I had to lay my money on it today, I would say that false religion is going to be very much wrapped up in uh, the political correctness to give it a polite term that we see 
today. That is the unifying direction that we are heading in, in, in this as a, as a world. And you see, you can see that division even in, uh, just look up the Methodist church of late and the things that are going on there. You can see splitting, dividing, unifying based on these kinds of ideas. Uh, and this, this false religion or uh, one world religion of the future is symbolized in Revelation 17 as this woman who is riding on the beast. And this, uh, this unifying one world religion is going to be headquartered in Babylon uh, as it's described in Revelation 17. But the woman on the beast in Babylon itself is going to be destroyed by the Antichrist and the false prophet, Revelation 17, 15 through 18. So it isn't always going to be a unification behind political correctness. That's just, to, that's the hook. That's just to get you in. And then once you're on the hook and you start getting reeled in, you're going to worship Satan himself. That's what it's all being driven towards. So again, warning to you people who may see this in the future uh, tribulation period before the second half. If you're, if you're unifying to uh, some kind of political correctness or something other than Jesus Christ, watch out because in three and a half years or less, you're going to be worshiping Satan himself, just like is described here in Revelation 13. And this false prophet is going to be the driving force behind that. He directs the world to worship the Antichrist and uh, Satan himself. And why would he do this? Why are these people doing this today and uniting around this uh, immoral activity, immoral beliefs? Because, well, they hate God and the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself hate God. And so they will do exactly uh, the same thing in the future. Uh, probably the, that it's going to turn from uniting around political correctness to worshiping the Antichrist and Satan himself shortly after he receives this fatal wound and is somehow uh, healed. And notice that he is also going to use deception. It's not just going to be do this or die. He's going to have some, something to try to back up what he's doing. Uh, verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed." So he's going to perform great signs. Very, very clear language there in verse 13. These are actual miracles. These aren't uh, uh, tricks or that, that kind of thing. Uh, they're actual miracles. The Lord warned about that. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5 in the Olivet Discourse, describing these end time events. That's what Matthew 24 is, is about, is about this tribulation period, the same thing that Revelation 6 through 19 is about. Uh, Jesus uh, boiled it down to one discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Well, he begins that discussion by saying, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Revelation 13, 13, he performs great signs. Do not be deceived. See that no one misleads you. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 
Verse 25, he goes on to say something along the lines of, uh, behold, I have told you ahead of time. I'm warning you of this. Here's another warning for these people. He's going to perform great signs, not just, uh, not just tricks, better than the Egyptian magicians that we can read about in Exodus chapter 7. He's going to literally be able to call down fire, it says there in verse 13, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, similar to uh, what happened to in Elijah's time, 1 Kings 18. Uh, if you, we took the time to read that, we'd see that the Lord had the fire come down as Elijah is praying. Elijah didn't make the fire came, come down. The Lord did on a couple of different occasions. 2 Kings 1 is another one. Uh, the Lord was doing that. Somehow this false prophet is doing it. How he does that, I, don't, I couldn't tell you how he does that. John was familiar with the idea of calling down fire because he asked the Lord if he wanted, uh, if the Lord wanted he and James to call down fire in Luke 9. That's why they're called the sons of thunder. I, I, that's an interesting I've always kind of thought that was an interesting title that the Lord gave them, the sons of thunder. We heard some thunder last night. Uh, if you live close by, it was very loud. But there was also lightning. Notice they're not the sons of lightning. The lightning is the thing that comes down and causes the problem. The thunder just makes noise. John and his brother were just kind of making noise when they asked the Lord about calling down fire on his enemies. But this person is, is actually going to, to do it. And these are actual miracles. Again, I, I would behoove you, me, all of us to kind of be careful in this regard because there are people, we can come across people who have actual experiences with uh, Miracles. I, I personally have experienced uh, miracles. I think I'm here as a result of a, at least one miracle in my life. A couple of years ago, got hit by a car and basically came out of it with a scratch. And that was it. Uh, my wife is here uh, due to a miracle. Uh, a lot of people experience miracles, but I'm talking about going to a church service and seeing somebody heal, those kinds of uh, miracles. It's hard to dispute somebody's uh, experience in their life, but I would take this as a warning that not, not all miracles uh, come from God. Um, I don't think it's too, too far out there or to say that some of the miracles that, we, that you could potentially see in a quote-unquote church service are questionable. Just ask Terry Evanish about it. Uh, if you ever heard his story, he had one eye that he lost uh, earlier in his life. And so he went to one of these kind of healing events and, you know, he's say, hey, I, I want to go on the stage and get my eye healed. And the people are like, no, you, you stay back. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a set list of people who we're going to see healed. And there's, of course, numerous accounts of fraud in this regard, but these, and these ministries are geared towards making money, not towards uh, helping people in reality. Uh, but at any rate, these are going to be genuine miracles and people could experience a genuine miracle. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's coming from the Lord as evidenced by these miracles. Another thing to keep in mind is that miracles in the Old and New Testament are pretty sparse. Uh, they're for a specific purpose of reinforcing the truth. And that's what these people are doing here. The message that they are preaching is being reinforced by miracles here. And it's the Antichrist and the false prophet satanically empowered. But the two witnesses are also performing miracles, if you remember, back to Revelation 11. And so... You know, it could be, you just have to be very careful basing, basing your opinion, which one you want to follow again for these future people who may be listening, pay attention to what they're teaching. 
The two witnesses are teaching about God and Jesus Christ and the salvation from your sin and these kinds of things. The false prophet and the Antichrist are are not going to be (laughs) teaching about having a right relationship with the God of the universe and the forgiveness of your sins. They're going to be talking about uh, something else. Uh, So we need to be careful. These people will need to be careful. The earth dwellers are going to be deceived. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. These people are walking by sight and not by faith, exactly the opposite of how we should be uh, living. And furthermore, they're disregarding the signs that have come from God. Very clearly, we saw that in Revelation 6, that they they understood that the wrath of God has come, and this uh, earthquake in the sixth seal, uh, verses 12 through 17, and the, the pain and problems that they are experiencing, these are coming from God, and let's run from him and hide and, and just hope that we die instead of turning from their sin and believing in him. They know exactly where this is coming from. Same thing after the fifth seal, people get mad and angry at God when the signs are clearly from him, they don't believe in him. And the reason for this is because they did not believe the truth so as to be saved, as it talks about in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 12. And I think we'll pick it up there because that's a good place to to end this morning and pick it up next week with 2 Thessalonians 2, talking about the reason why these people are find themselves in the problem that they do, and that it is because they receive they refuse to believe the truth. And this is uh, very uh, pertinent for us today. I, I think we can safely say that most of us, if not all of us here today, this morning, have believed in Christ for the salvation of our souls. We understand that we are uh, sinful people separated from God because of that sin. But God stepped out of eternity into this world, lived as a man, God, the eternal son, came into this world, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, sacrificed himself for our sins on the cross, thus opening up salvation to us if we will just simply believe. The Bible is very, very clear and explicit on the one condition for our salvation, and it is that we would trust in Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And if we do that, we are instantaneously uh, given his righteousness Uh, We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given every spiritual blessing, Ephesians tells us. We're also given eternal life with him. But we still have this life to live. The overwhelming majority of the Bible is not explicitly about what I just described to you, how we can have eternal life. The overwhelming majority of the Bible is about how we can have a right relationship with him as we go through life. There's entire books about that. Uh, The Psalms, the Proverbs, uh, most of the epistles are how to then live because you have trusted in Christ. And these people in the future get into trouble because they didn't believe the first part of it. They didn't believe in Christ. And so now they're, they're open to deception. We today get into trouble when we don't believe the Bible also about daily living. And we can also uh, get into trouble in our life by disregarding things like being faithful to him and, uh, walking after him moment by moment, trusting in him, which is uh, sanctification, our daily living with the Lord. Uh, And thankfully, 
when we do that, we have a way to be forgiven for that also. Not just to have eternal life, but when our feet get dirty through walking in the world, we can go to him and ask him for forgiveness and have a right relationship with him and thank the Lord for that. So next time, we will pick it up with the rest of uh, the deception that the false prophet does and then move into some other things that he will do in the future. But thank the Lord that we have the Bible to live by today. Thank the Lord that Christ went to the cross for us so that we can be saved and be with him forever. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation that uh, obviously reveals so much about the future, but it also reminds us so much about the world in which we are living in today. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be careful as we walk in this world that is already uh, filled with the spirit of Antichrist. We don't have to look hard to see that, that the world is turning from you and towards uh, things that are against you, the exact opposite of you and your principles. I just pray, Lord, for your protection over us as believers, that we would be faithful. We would be faithful to you and to your word in spite of what the rest of the world is doing and the consequences of doing it. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us and empower us to be faithful and true to your word as we live out the rest of our lives here. We pray for your will to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.